I've been singing the Game of Thrones theme for the last two days. It's a Tuesday. House of the Dragon premiered on Sunday, and I've just been singing Game of Thrones soundtrack, the, the theme of Game of Thrones, over and over and over in my head because it's one of the best themes of all time. And once it gets in your head, it's just impossible to get out. That's been stuck in my head all week. Hot D came out. That's the nickname that George R.R. R. Martin gave uh, House of the Dragon, the new HBO uh, HBO prequel series to Game of Thrones called House of the Dragon. George R.R. R. Martin calls it Hot D. And to be honest with you, I didn't know if I was going to get into it. I was not too terribly excited about it because of the way. I mean, this is a very original take. I'm being sarcastic. The way, because of the way that Game of Thrones ended, I wasn't too excited about a prequel. I had my heart broken with the way that series ended, unfortunately. Uh, season 8 was kind of a disaster. I would even go as far to say as the back half of Season 7 wasn't great. The back half of Season 7 into, basically, the, the beginning of Season 8 was pretty good, all the way up until, like, the long night, and then everything, basically, after that was kind of a mess. But... There's still a lot there that I love. The, the, the world itself is something that I truly love. I truly love exploring the world of Westeros and, and all the other, you know, Eastern territories of the Game of Thrones universe. And I didn't think I was going to get back into the show because I was a little nervous. I was like, I can't have my heart destroyed like that again. I can't be left like that on a series like this. But man, it was like I was I felt like I felt like Michael Corey alone in Godfather three. I was like. Just when I thought I was out, they pull me back in. It was a good first episode. I was very, I, I won't say impressed because with HBO shows, it's hard to really be impressed because they're all pretty much top to bottom. They're very good, especially with those original series like that. But I was, uh, I was, I was gleefully surprised, I guess is what I would say. Uh, not necessarily impressed, but I was very, I was, I was surprised. It felt like. Game of Thrones, you know, earlier Game of Thrones stuff, season one of Game of Thrones, you kind of felt the politics of Westeros again, kind of intertwining their way into bigger plot lines down the road. And that's what it felt like. And I was uh, I was kind of back in. Plus, they had a lot of brutal, uh, a very brutal scene. If you haven't seen it, go watch it. I'm not going to spoil anything, but they had a very brutal scene about halfway through the episode. The tournament and stuff was very cool. Matt Smith, who plays Damon Targaryen, is fantastic. He is perfect for that role. He is the guy to play that character. I absolutely loved him in the first episode and everybody else, everybody else did a really good job. I didn't really have any issues with any of the characters in the first episode or how they were acted or anything like that. And yeah, I came back and at the end of the episode, I was like, we're back. I'm back. I'm in, I'm in every Sunday. Now I will be here all the way up until the 10th episode. I think they're probably doing 10 episodes per season. I don't know for sure, but I'm assuming they are. I'm going to be here until the 10th episode of season one. And depending on how that ends, I'll probably back for season two. So it's good to be back for Game of Thrones. I'm so happy it's back. Even though I hated the way it ended, the original series ended, I am here for the prequel. And the good thing about this prequel series, welcome to the <laughs> welcome to the Weekend Sports Rep podcast, by the way, where we talk about all things sports. But also, I mean, I love Game of Thrones, so I'm going to talk about it a little bit, okay? We'll get to sports in a minute. Um, I, I appreciate uh, for, for this prequel series, the book that it's already based off of is done. And that is a big problem that they ran into in the original series is that they outran the actual book series that George R.R. R. Martin is writing. So by the time I think it was season five, six, seven, and eight, 
they were basically writing without anything to go off of because Martin hadn't gotten that far in writing his own books. So they were basically creating for the books, even though Martin has said, you know, it's going to go a different way when he actually finishes the books. So now with the prequel series, the prequel book is already completed. So they already have a beginning, a middle and an end basically drawn out for them. So I can't imagine it going as poorly as it did for Game of Thrones, where they basically not they didn't have creative freedom per se, but they kind of had the freedom to explore different avenues that they wanted. And in the end, I think it was more or less just rushed so that it can kind of be, you know, they, they can kind of end it. The writers could end it. I can't remember their names off the top of my head, but everybody knows who they are. If they're Game of Thrones fans, they know who I'm talking about. Um, and not to say, you know, the the harassment that they've gotten from that situation is a good thing. It's not, you should not be harassing those people. They basically spent eight years of their lives creating the very thing that you enjoyed for, you know, more than half of it. So, you know, gives and it takes, you know, I, I don't, I don't blame them necessarily. I am just disappointed on how it ended. I think if they had the books to go off of, I think it would have been a lot better, obviously. Um, and I'm excited to see how they go with this prequel series, especially after episode one, like I said, I'm back in Michael Corey alone. They pulled me or just when I thought I was out, they pulled me back in. That's kind of the the feeling I got from that episode. I was like, okay, I'm back. I'm excited to see where this goes because I haven't read the prequel book. I haven't read any of the books, to be honest with you. I do want to read them, even though, you know, George R. R. Martin, he writes basically the Bible and it's a thousand pages long and there's like five books. So I don't know. I probably I don't want to read them, but I kind of want to read them just because I find that 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 place that fantasy so uh, interesting and the world around it so interesting but i mean it's books you know, man. i'm not the biggest reader in the world you know um but yeah i don't know i'm interested to see where it goes and i'm 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 keen on learning more about the characters that they have and more about the world of westeros before game of thrones um so yeah that's my my quick my quick uh, house of the dragon hot d as george r, r. george r. r martin calls it my quick hot d kind of review you know uh, I think I'm, I, I don't think I'm alone in everything that I'm saying. I think a lot of people were kind of out and then, you know, the, the first episode came out for hot D and everybody was like, okay, I'm back. I'm totally okay. You keep giving me this, then I'm back. No problem. For whatever reason, the Westeros politics in game of Thrones are a lot more interesting than in the real world. And that's interesting. That's an interesting perspective. I guess it's because it's more life or death, I guess. Um, but who knows? I, I don't know. It's it's more interesting that way. I guess it's because it's a, a greater look inside of what's actually going on uh, in a fantasy world. I don't know. I, I'm getting into the the deep end of it all. But anyways, uh, it's a good start. I'm excited. I hope everybody else is excited. And watch the show. You might not be a fantasy fan. If you're not a fantasy fan, that's fair enough. You probably won't like Game of Thrones. It's a little on the edge of fantasy. I wouldn't say it goes as far as like Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings is pretty hardcore fantasy. This one's more like middle age with a hint of fantasy tied to it there are dragons and stuff like that but there's not a whole lot of like uh, overwriting uh, over and over uh, an overhand of uh, of magic and that sort of thing even though it's kind of hinted at times you know there's curses and stuff like that that they kind of hint to but it it's, feels a lot more based in a somewhat different type of reality i guess if that makes sense um so if you haven't watched it, watch Game of Thrones. You will be disappointed by the end more than likely. But first four seasons, four or five, almost I would say five to six seasons are some of the best television ever created. So I would say watch it even if you're not 
too keen on fantasy. I don't think it's necessarily huge, uh, huge fantasy override. I guess it's not not Lord of the Rings fantasy. Uh, just a more Middle Earth version of a fantasy telling. I guess is what I would say. It's very good. Game of Thrones. I'm ranting a little bit. I'm probably going too far on this. We're about eight and a half minutes in. I apologize. We're going to get into sports. Let's get into sports. Welcome to the Weekend Sports Wrap Podcast. I said that already. I'm James Timberlake. Uh, quick, Some quick uh, janitorial stuff. Please remember to rate and subscribe wherever you're listening. If you're listening on Spotify, Google Podcasts, uh, Apple Podcasts, wherever you're listening, please give me a rating. I would really appreciate that. And then remember to follow. I don't think it's subscribe. It could be subscribe on other platforms, but subscribe, follow, whatever it is. Please do that, and then you'll know whenever I post or whatever. You'd be caught up to all the latest episodes and whatnot, so I'd really appreciate that, and uh, thank you all for tuning in. Today, we got a couple of uh, the topics we're going to talk about. We got the Cowboys football season. The Wyoming Cowboys football season is right around the quarter corner. Uh, the, the entire college football season is right around the corner. They all basically start on Saturday with week zero, per se, I guess is kind of what they call it, but whatever. Week zero, week one, whatever you want to call it, uh, starts this coming Saturday. Uh, the 27th, I believe, is that the right day? 25th, 26th, 27th, I don't know what Saturday is. This coming Saturday, which is uh, the 27th, I was right, the 27th, the upcoming Saturday, college football season finally starts. We've got some preseason football that's been going on, but it's preseason football. It doesn't feel like real football, and now we get college football that'll actually be real regular season games to hold us over until the NFL starts the Sunday after Labor Day, So, or the Thursday after Labor Day, actually. So. We'll talk a little bit about the Cowboys, what to kind of expect from that team um, as the season approaches and as their first game comes on Saturday. Uh, we're going to talk a little baseball. We have some uh, some history coming up, home run history that is on the rise, maybe. I mean, it's kind of, we'll see where we're at. I'm going to discuss a little bit about Aaron Judge. He's getting closer and closer to hitting uh, 60 home runs. The more home runs he hits, obviously, the closer he gets. He's got about like 40, 45 games left in the season. I believe he's hit 43. Three home runs, 47 home runs, excuse me, 47 home runs. And, um, you know, it's, I wouldn't say it's, wouldn't be mind boggling if he hit 60, if he became the, I believe there's been five players that have hit 60 home runs in a single season. Sammy Sosa did it three times. McGuire did it twice. Bonds, obviously, he did 73. McGuire also did 70. Um, but McGuire did it twice. Bonds did it once. Sosa did it three times. And then Maris and Ruth. So five players have hit 60 home runs in a single season. And Aaron Judge, Looks to become the sixth name on that list. We'll talk a little bit about that. And Albert Pujols, he is seven home runs away from reaching colossal mark, number 700, very close, seven home runs away from that. He hit one yesterday, I believe, that got him to 693. So now he is just seven away from getting to 700 home runs on the season. So we'll talk a little bit about that, who he's kind of chasing on that list. And uh, yeah, we're going to talk about all that stuff. We're going to maybe talk a little preseason football as well, even though there's not a lot to really talk about. There are some interesting names to take a look at in terms of, uh, you know, the stat lines and, and uh, you know, who was out there playing quarterback and all that jazz and, you know, yada, yada, yada. It is preseason. I know it's not as interesting, but, you know, you got to hold it over for a little bit until September. Okay, September hits. We're talking real football. And even after this weekend, we're talking real college football. So, you know. Hold it together. We're getting there. We're almost done. The The dreaded August feeling of, you know, of nothing really going on is almost over. Okay. Just one more weekend and then we're back to full strength when it comes to all sports, baseball, getting into their playoff run, and then football finally kind of getting into full swing after this weekend. So just a little bit longer, 
and then we'll be talking about all this other different types of stuff. So where do we want to start today? Where should we start today? I think we should start with home runs. Who doesn't love home runs? Aaron Judge, Albert Pujols, they're both chasing big-time stuff. Judge, number trying to get to 60. Like I said, the sixth player to hit 60 is what he's trying to go for. Babe Ruth hit 60. Maris hit 61. Sammy Sosa hit 63. Then he hit 64. Then he hit 66. Man, the steroid era was fun. Uh, Mark McGuire hit 65 and 70. And then Barry Bonds had 73 in one set in one season. Um, so we'll see what happens. I don't know. I, I he's he's really kind of. I mean, the Yankees as a whole have really kind of fallen off a cliff. To be honest with you, as as a team, when it comes to hitting and just everything that they're doing, they've kind of been a disaster as of recent. Judge was basically a walking favorite up until I mean, recently. I would say early August, probably, probably basically. To be, I mean, ever since the All Star break, he was basically the walking favorite to win MVP, and I still think he is prominently the probably the the favorite to win MVP. Uh, the only problem I would say is he's definitely cooled off as of recently. In the month of July, he was slashing a three thirty three, four forty six, eight oh six slugging. In the month of July alone, he had thirteen home runs as well, thirty two RBIs, uh, thirty one hits total. He was having a fantastic month of July, but then. Just like the rest of the Yankees, ever since basically the start of August, it's been kind of a disaster. He's still hitting 281, a 446 on base percentage, but a 578 slugging. He only has five home runs in the month of August and 12 RBIs. It's been kind of a disaster for both. No, I wouldn't say a disaster. They're still leading the AL East, but they have definitely fallen off a cliff. The Yankees as a whole. Judge is also fallen a little bit. He's slumping, I would say, as much as a 281 slump is, but he's not hitting it for as much power as of recently. Like I said, a 578 slugging, 12, or excuse me, five home runs on 12 in 12 RBIs. So he's still got a little bit of a way to go to actually catch 60. There's, what did I, what did I say, about 40, 45 games left in the season. He's at 47 home runs. He's by far the leader in home runs. I think the only net, the closest person to his home run total, I think, has 34 home runs. So he's going to more than likely win the uh, be, be the home run king per se the home run crown for the season and I had somebody ask me the other day actually if he continues on his slump does Shohei overlap him as most valuable player and that's an interesting question if I mean not necessarily his slump but if the Yankees keep kind of just falling into this massive void of a deep funk that they're already in like Back in early June, just on June 20th, basically two months ago, they were 49 and 17, a 742 winning percentage. It was the uh, major league, uh, the MLB's best start since the 2001 Mariners went 52 and 14 on their way to 116 wins. And only a half dozen other teams, including the 1998 Yankees, had won 49 or more of their first 66 games. Now, now since that point, they've gone 26 and 31 in their pace over 160 games has dropped below 100. So they started 49 and 17 back on June 20th. That was their record. And then now on that page, they could have gone 48 and 48 the rest of the way. The Yankees would still finish with 97 wins. Now, since that point though, since the 49 and 17 record on June 20th, they've gone 26 and 31 and their pace has dropped to below 100 wins on the season. That is a disaster, a disastrous situation. That is a problem going in to... I mean, they, they're almost certainly going to make the playoffs, even if it is a wild card. If they somehow lose this lead in the AL East, they're still probably more than likely a wild card team. But everybody knows this. You do not want to enter 
a playoff, especially in the MLB, heat is everything. Your your heat mark, if you will, is everything in the MLB. If you come in on a wild card and you're slumping against a team in the wild card series now instead of just the game, um, if you come into a wild card series against a team that is hot, that it just got into the wild card by basically winning off a bunch of games, that is a disaster ready to happen. And that team, I would say I'm more confident in the team that is hot than the team that is cold, such as the Yankees, even though the Yankees have a better roster all the way through uh, compared to a bunch of other wild card teams other than maybe like Toronto. Toronto can probably match them for the most part when it comes to their roster construction. There's still some holes every, you know, in a bunch of different areas for Toronto. But I mean, obviously the Yankees aren't without flaws as well. And their trade deadline acquisitions have been kind of a mess as well. Uh, Frankie Montas hasn't been very good for them. Jordan Montgomery, who they traded away to the Cardinals in order to get Harrison Bader. Montgomery just threw a complete game for the Cardinals, which the Yankees would love to have had that right now, right about now. Um, And Bader for the Yankees now, I believe he's walking around in a boot after an ankle sprain, if if I remember correctly, for the Yankees. To even go back a little bit more, according to Fangraphs, the Yankees were they were still uh, you know at the 84 game mark through July 8th playing at a 118 game win pace 118 win pace excuse me only one team since 1920 had outdone them and that would have been the 98 Yankees who were 64 and 20 through 84 games but since then since that 84th game back on July 8th the Yankees are 14 and 25 ahead of only the Marlins who are 13 and 27 the Nationals who are 11 and 26 and the Tigers who are 11 and 29 in terms of winning percentage. That's despite outscoring the opposition during that span, 178 to 175, which only adds to the sense of a completely squandered opportunity for the Yankees. And just to break out on the records a little bit more, the Yankees are also 11 and 20 since the all-star break and six and 14 since the start of August, their AL least their AL East lead, excuse me. I can't, I'm tripping over everything. Their AL East lead which was 12 games as of June 18th and a season high 15 and a half games back on July 8th is now down to eight throw either though. Neither the blue Jays who are 15, 12 in the second half, nor the Rays uh, who are 14 or 15 and 14 in the second half have also have seized the opportunity either. So it looks like they're going to win out and claim the AL East crown. If neither the blue Jays or the Rays really kind of catch fire towards the end in September or the back half of July or excuse me, the back half of August. And another thing is there, I mean, this is always bad for the Yankees, not not to mention just in this situation, because it feels like the sky is kind of falling for the Yankees at this present moment in time, but they can't even claim to have the best record in New York anymore. The Mets are 79 and 45, taking two out of three in the season series so far. I believe the Subway series is still going on as of Tuesday. I think they had like a two game series or something like that. And I think they played Tuesday night. It's Tuesday afternoon as of recording this, so somebody tell me how it happened. I bet it was great. Um, anyways, uh, they can't even, yeah, they can't claim to have the best record in New York, which Yankees fans, I know, they're punching the air at that because the Mets, the little brothers having a better record than the New York, New York Yankees, I know that's a bad feeling for Yankees fans. I totally know it because Mets are, you know, they've been basically the the punching bag for the entirety of the 2000s except for that weird year where they went to the World Series with the Royals, even though they lost. But other than that, the Yankees have basically beaten up on the Mets for the last 20 years in um, in the city of New York in the in the Subway Series. So it'll be interesting to see what the Yankees do. I, we kind of got into a broader 
a broader, you know, discussion here. I guess mainly the discussion would be, I mean, Aaron Judge is kind of the the, the history chaser at the moment, so I kind of got into a broader discussion here. But it is interesting to see the Yankees, what's happening with them. They have been kind of a, a basically a disaster since the halfway point of July. Um, and it'll be interesting to see what they do. Luis Severino got hurt. Michael King got hurt. Giancarlo Stanton and Matt Carpenter both got hurt. I believe Matt Carpenter's out for the rest of the season, if I remember correctly, which out of all people I expected to have, you know, a big impact on this team. Matt Carpenter was not one of them. Um, so that cuts into the offense. The acquisitions, like I said, of Andrew Banintendi, Frankie Montas, Lou Trevino, and Scott Efros ahead of the August 2nd trade deadline made sense. Um, but the two bigger name players have been pretty overwhelming, that being Frankie Montas and uh, Andrew Benatendi. Jordan Montgomery, like I said, got, they got rid of him, but he's been pretty good for the Cardinals since he got over to St. Louis. And Joey Gallo, they basically, I mean, they could have basically cut him. I'm surprised they got anything out of Joey Gallo when they traded him, but he's been playing good for, I mean, good's a strong word, but he's been playing a lot better for the Dodgers than he was for the Yankees. I believe just the other day he had a, I want to say it was a two for four game or a two, three for four game or something like that. So Joey Gallo, very, very, very affected, uh, affected very well by the change of serum uh, scenery in uh, Los Angeles. And he's playing a lot better. I'm telling you they're making people shave off the beard in New York and it's affecting them confidence. It's affecting their confidence. Okay. Joey Gallo, he gets the beard back when he goes back, he goes to the Los Angeles completely changes him. He's a much better player. Now it's, you know, if you're not clean shaven already, when you get to New York, then this is just a random, you know, this is a random theory I have. I just thought of it. If you're not already clean shaven, when you get to the Yankees, like if you hadn't already played with a beard and everything, if you have to go to the Yankees and shave, I think you're going to be a worse player. I think you have to already be a clean shaven person in order to play good for the Yankees. I think that's a rule. I'm going to make that rule now. Well, from now on out, whoever, from here on out, whoever joins the Yankees, if they were playing with a beard beforehand, you know, for a long time or whatever, if they had a beard for beforehand and they have to shave the beard when they go to the Yankees, they're going to play worse for the Yankees. That's a number of factors, but that's number one, I think. And, you know, sure, you know, bright lights, New York City, I get it, playing for the Yankees, not exactly an easy place to play for by any means, but, I mean, you you lose that guard of a nice beard on your face, you know, something that makes you look a lot cooler than just like a clean-shaven, baby-faced person, especially Joey Gallo. Joey Gallo looks weird without a beard. That rhymed. And Joey Gallo, no offense, you look better with a beard. You're not listening to this, but if you are, you look a lot better with the beard, my guy. And you're playing a lot better with the beard. So, I don't know. That's a theory. There's your theory. We'll take that theory for the day. We'll run with it. If you aren't already clean-shaven when you come and join the Yankees, then you're going to play worse when they make you shave your face. And I think Matt Carpenter has a mustache. I think that's a rule where you can have a mustache. If I remember correctly, you just can't have the beard. Um, but, you know, who knows? I, I don't know. Anthony Rizzo is another example. He didn't have a beard, but he was clean-shaven when he came over. And, you know, he, did, he played all right. But he was good for them for the most part. He hasn't been playing very good for them recently. But he was one of the players of the month, if I remember correctly, back in June or like May at the beginning of the season. So, you know, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm trying to create a good argument for this disastrous theory. But, I mean, prove me wrong. You know what I mean? That's all I'll say. Look it up. Look it up, if you will. Um, anyways, going back to Aaron Judge, do I think he's going to get to 60? I do. Uh, I think he... Uh, I think he can. The problem is... 
I think he's playing worse because the rest of the team is playing worse, if that makes sense. I don't think he will... If this team keeps slumping the way it is, the lineup hasn't been good around him or anything like that. They've been really kind of a mess. Um, and I think I'm a big believer in playing down to the people around you. And I think if they keep slumping the way they are, I think he's going to have a lot worse chance to catch it, even though it's a completely, even though it's more of like a solo achievement. I think him playing down to the rest of his teammates is definitely going to, I mean, clearly it's, I mean, it's already affecting him. Basically he had a great month of July, but after that coming into August, he's definitely slumped a lot more around the plate. So do I think he'll break it? I think he will. You still got a lot of baseball left, like 40 games, like I said, 40, 45 games, give or take. And he's got 47 home runs. He only needs 13 home runs in order to get to 60. And all you have to do is hit 60, and you're one of the six people to ever do it. Um, I think he'll do it. Now, I don't know if the Yankees will get a lot better just over this time as well. I, I don't know how it really coincides or anything like that. I do, Like I said, I do think Judge is playing worse because the team around him is playing worse just in general. And that has a great mental effect on these guys, especially playing as long as they do and playing around each other as long as they do. I think if that team starts playing better, I think he has a much better shot at breaking it as a as a record just because it's a lot easier to play, especially in New York, uh, around a team that is winning consistently, consistently winning than it is in a stadium like Yankee Stadium where it's been nothing but basically disappointment since the All-Star break. So, I think you'll hit it. I think you'll get to 60. Um, I think it, it'll probably be close. I wouldn't be surprised if it came down to the last week or so of the season. But, um, yeah, I think he can get to 60. I wouldn't be surprised if he did. It'll be cool once he does. But, man, it is interesting to also look back at those seasons, you know, for uh, for the, the, the juiced years, if you will. Sammy Sosa, 63. Uh, one season he hit 64. Another season he hit 66. Mark McGuire. 65, 70, another season, then Barry Bonds, 73. That's the problem with having these records now broken by these guys that were juicing at the time, and now they're not juicing. None of the, I mean, you know, I won't say none of the players are juicing. I, I wouldn't be surprised if a lot more players were juicing than we thought. Um, but it's interesting. Now it's basically, I mean, I would garner to say it's basically impossible to break Barry Bonds's record at this point in time in the baseball that we play today, I can't see anybody touching Barry Bonds's record anytime soon. I can't see the 73 being broken ever. But to be honest with you, that season was so absurd where he broke the 73 single season home run record that he hit. Um, it was so absurd for Barry Bonds. He was juicing. Obviously everybody knows that, but he was also Barry Bonds in general was one of the greatest hitters of all time. Just top to bottom, you know, again, you can juice, of course, it's going to make your power better. You know, he was stronger than basically every other human being on the field at the time. If you hit Barry Bonds, I firmly believe if you're the pitcher, I believe Barry Bonds could charge the mound and rip you in half because of how strong it was at the time. But the other aspect of it was he was not a bad hit. I mean, he was a fantastic hitter of the baseball. Just in general, he did not swing at anything that was outside of his strike zone that he knew he couldn't make good contact with. And steroids don't necessarily help with that. He was very good at knowing his zone and he did not swing at strikes that were outside of the strike zone basically ever. I believe one season he had a, I think it was a 694 on base percentage. He was getting on base 694, 69% of the time. Nice. Basically 70% of the time 
because one, yes, he was hitting the ball very well. Not going to argue that, but also he was walking a ton. The baseball bat was not necessarily, it was wet. It was his weapon of choice. It was mainly fear. He struck so much fear into pitchers that they'd rather just pitch around him than even throw anything into the zone that they knew he could go get. That was the beautiful thing about Barry Bonds. And I'm talking about him like I'm eulogizing him. And MLB basically did kill him pretty much. I mean, nobody talks about Barry Bonds anymore in any sense of Hall of Fame discussion or all-time player discussion or anything like that. And that's kind of the MLB's doing after, you know, the whole juicing scandal and everything. Nobody talks about him that way. But I firmly believe he is the greatest hitter of our generation. We talk about Juan Soto coming up as being one of the, the Ted Williams of our time or something like that. But we already had a Ted Williams of our time, and his name was Barry Bonds. Ted Williams, if Ted Williams were alive today, I I think he would see Barry Bonds, and he would see a lot of shades of himself, to be honest with you. Not necessarily the juicing, but the approach to hitting that Barry Bonds had at the time was, I won't say unique, because the game hadn't changed that much at that point. It was still very much, it wasn't, you know, the three true outcomes or anything like that. But I think he saw a lot of, himself in the way that he approached hitting where walks were just as good as hits per se he didn't chase anything that he knew he, he thought he thought he could crush even though he probably couldn't crush it that wasn't how Barry Bonds swung the bat that wasn't how Barry Bonds hit the baseball I think that he was the Ted Williams for our time and we kind of just thrown him under the bus because yes he cheated not going to deny that he absolutely did but there were other factors that made Barry Bonds one of the great hitters of our time and I truly think I believe that. I think he is one of the greatest hitters of our time, the greatest hitter of our time ever since Ted Williams or whoever, Hank Aaron, you can go down the list. But I think Barry Bonds was that for the modern day baseball player. If you throw Barry Bonds in the game today, I really, I mean, you know, Barry Bonds from 20 years ago, if you pick him up and drop him in the game today, I still think he's hitting 73 home runs. I don't think that changes at all. He's one of those, you know, Inter, intergenerational players who I think could play in any generation, especially in today where, you know, basically the only thing that's changed is more people are swinging at balls that they shouldn't be swinging at. Barry Bonds had that mastered already. He'd walk more than any other person in the world, even though they'd tell him not to. It wouldn't matter because he'd still want to walk. It's 69%, it's 694 on base percentage in 2004 or whatever it was, was like 200 points higher then the second place person, which I think was Todd Helton at the time, who had like a four, four eighty something, if I remember correctly. I could look all this up, but I'm not gonna because it's gonna make me stop talking about what I'm talking about. So, anyways, that was kind of a long-winded way of saying I don't th- see anybody catching Barry Bonds, even if Aaron Judge gets to sixty this season. I don't see any way that anybody, even Judge, who is arguably the best. Power, especially the best power hitter right now in the game, other than you know Stanton, even though he's kind of aged out of it, but probably the best power hitter in the game today. Uh, I don't see him ever getting close to Barry Bonds' 73. And that's kind of a, that's the sad part of the steroid era, I'd say. Even though we wipe it all under the rug, if we still keep these records, the Sammy Sosa home runs, the Mark McGuire home runs, the Barry Bonds home runs in, then we're comparing apples to oranges, per se. The We're comparing synthetic power which was Barry Bonds and Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa to people that are real power you know like Aaron Judge not to say that you know none of those guys didn't have power but obviously they were synthetically helped by the steroids to have a bigger a better better power on their bat and better better power when they hit the ball 
than a guy like Aaron Judge, and I think that's that's an it's an unfair advantage for those guys, obviously. And that's kind of the that's kind of the issue I take with it. If it were me, Roger Maris would still have the most home runs in MLB history with sixty one in a single season. That makes it a lot more interesting. Then we're sitting here talking about can Aaron Judge catch Roger Maris, not Barry Bonds, because we know he's not going to catch Barry Bonds. But 61, 61 home runs, forty five games left in the season. He's got that would make it fourteen home runs left that we'd need to tie Roger Maris, fifteen to beat him. That makes it a lot more interesting, and I think a lot more would pay a lot more people would pay attention to this chase for Aaron Judge beating Maris than they would be just for him to hit sixty. Not to say sixty is you know him hitting sixty is anything to bat your eye at. Like I said, only five players have ever done it, um, but the fact that we're comparing the steroid laden players to the natural power players like Aaron judge, Roger Maris and Babe Ruth is just an unfair advantage to the steroid laden pair players because of course they had more home runs either, either take it all out or just admit that they did it and give them the record. You know what I mean? Like it's weird that they're playing this half and half game. It just doesn't make any sense to me. And I don't think it ever will. Unfortunately, um, but I'm also one of those people that thinks Barry Bonds should also be in the Hall of Fame. Now, granted, I don't think he should be in the Hall of Fame for his 73 home run season. I think that should be, you know, ripped from the annals of MLB history, to be honest with you. But you take out all those seasons. I've talked about this already. This is kind of my rant that I love talking about. Um, but if you go back and you take all those out, I still think he's a if you take all those seasons out that we know he was juicing in. I still think he's probably a Hall of Fame player. Um I don't know if it goes if the same goes for Mark McGuire, Sammy Sosa, and that's a whole other story. I don't think it goes the same goes for either of those players, to be honest with you. But maybe McGuire, I don't think Sosa, but I think the game becomes more authentic and more fun to watch, to be honest with you, if you're just having Aaron Judge chase down the actual record compared to, you know, the guys that were juicing at the time and chasing that record as well comes it becomes a completely different story and then you have your apples to oranges and stuff like that and then it's just a you know i i don't know it just it rubs me the wrong way that they're doing it half and half for barry bonds and all these other guys where barry bonds is the the most home runs in a single season he still has that record but we can't act like he can't make the hall of fame or anything like that because of what he did even though we're still recognizing what he did in an every season basis, if that makes sense. It doesn't, it doesn't compute to me. So anyways, that's, yeah, that's that. That's Aaron judge. He's going to hit. I hope he's going to hit 60. It'll be cool if he hits 60 first time in a long time that we've seen that Barry bonds basically was the last person to do it. Um, it'd be cool to see. And you know, no bigger story in, in baseball than a Yankees player getting to 60 home runs. That'd be great for the sport, to be honest with you. Um, and be something that people would pay attention to. So we'll see what happens there, Judge. We'll move on here to another historic feat that is on the rise, probably going to happen a lot sooner. Maybe not a lot sooner, but I think has more likely to happen than uh, than Aaron Judge hitting 60, and that is Albert Pujols. He is on his way to uh, 700 home runs. He is on his way to catching Alex Rodriguez, who Alex Rodriguez had 696 at the end of his career. Uh, so three away from tying him, four away from passing Alex Rodriguez, and then Babe Ruth seven fourteen, ha- uh, Hank Aaron seven fifty five, Barry Bonds at seven sixty two. So he would become the fourth player of all time to get to seven hundred home runs, a feat that is incredible. He's already uh, basically a, a chalked in Hall of Famer. 
or write him in pen, basically. He's already there. They're probably already making his his plaque and all that jazz up in Cooperstown. They're already they're already making it. It's already being built. It's already being written. All that jazz. Forty two years old. He's gonna get to seven hundred. I I'd hope he gets to seven hundred. If he doesn't get to seven hundred, I imagine he probably comes back for basically one year, and he'll probably play half the year if he finally gets to seven hundred. Um, but I did read somewhere that he actually prefers the RBI record to the home run record. I believe he said that in an, in an interview. He said that he preferred being listed higher on the RBI record because I believe he said that it was uh, that's how you win the game, quote unquote, or something like that. You hit RBIs and you win games that way. So he's not too far away from Babe Ruth either. Catching Babe, he's third all time right now. As of Tuesday, um, he's going to be third all time by the by the time this drops as well. He's only twenty six. RBIs away from catching Babe Ruth, and then from Hank Aaron, who is number one, he is still 109 away from him as of Tuesday. So I don't think he's going to catch Hank Aaron. He could catch Babe Ruth. I wouldn't be surprised if he got Babe Ruth. Probably, I don't know. By the end of the season, probably not. 26 RBIs in a month and a half. That's a lot to ask. However, he did say that he plans on retiring after the end of the 2022 season. So he wants to try to catch 700. By the time he retires, no doubt. Uh, 26 RBIs, that's probably too much. I don't see him catching Babe Ruth, so he'll more than likely finish third in uh, RBIs in the history of the MLB, but he could catch Babe Ruth. 26 RBIs in a month and a half, that is a lot, but wouldn't be the craziest thing in the world. I don't think he's an everyday starter for the Cardinals at the moment either. I think he's kind of an off and on, um, but you know, like I said, seven hundred or seven home runs is a lot easier to catch in that sense for a guy like him than it is you know, 26 RBIs. So, I can see him passing Alex Rodriguez for fourth all time. He's only four home run, four, four home runs away from that, so I can definitely see that happening in the next month and a half. Seven again, same thing as Judge. I can see that coming down to the wire, kind of a last couple of games sort of thing. To be honest with you, but he has been in on an absolute tear just in the month of August. Uh, an absolute tear, arguably player of the month. To be honest with you, which is crazy to me. Forty-two year old Albert Pujols, one of the uh, arguable players of the month. I did not see on my bingo sheet for the 2022 uh, MLB season. That is not something that I had on the old bingo card for um, for this season. But like I said, he's been on an absolute tear. One of the best players in the month of July. He's hitting 472 right now. Again, only 40 plate appearances, so not a lot. He is kind of an off and on and again player. He hasn't been playing uh, too much. He's basically DH. If he's not DHing, he's basically pinch hitting. I think he played first base two times in the month of August so far. Um, so he's basically been a DH. The universal DH has been great for him because I don't think anybody has really wanted to take a chance at first base with Albert Pujols. So he would probably land it on an AL team had it not been for the universal DH coming back to the Cardinals. But he's hitting 472, 525, and a 1.083 slugging percentage. He's got seven home runs in the month of August already. Eight runs, 14 RBIs as well on 17 hits total. So it's very possible we see... Albert Pujols player of the month announcement. If he keeps on this tear towards the end to the end of the month of August, I would, uh, I would not be surprised. And if he keeps on this tear into September, then by all means, I definitely see him hitting 700, 701, you know, whatever. Uh, and finishing off his career at the end of 2022, a 700 home run man. Um, and that'd be cool to see. Albert Pujols, one of the great guys in all of baseball history, period in the middle of that steroid era where everybody was kind of uh, being, you know, side-eyed as to, is this really, you know, is this for real? Is this, is he really a real player? You know, is he not doing, 
Are we sure he's not doing steroids? He's always come back as clean, 42 years old, and like I said, played into his early 40s and so on and so forth. He's played forever, it feels like. I feel like I've been I, I've been as long, li- alive as long as he's been playing baseball for the St. Louis Cardinals, nonetheless, every, uh, you know, the Angels as well and everything else. So we'll see what happens with Edward Pujols. Like I said, one of the great guys in the history of the league. He's already etched into the, into stone on the Hall of Fame wall. They're just waiting for him to retire so they can put the plaque up. He will be a Hall of Famer. First ballot, no doubt. Unanimous, who knows? Probably not unanimous because not many people are unanimous. Maybe he will be unanimous. If he gets to 700 home runs, I wouldn't be surprised if he was a unanimous Hall of Famer. But, um, yeah, I mean, we'll see what happens. I hope he gets to 700 home runs. Nobody really deserves it more than I think Albert Pujols. That pains me to say because I grew up as a kid that uh, my dad grew up in, uh, or as, as a kid, my dad lived in Houston, and uh, Albert Pujols was always, 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 always a thorn in the side of those early to mid to basically late 2000s Astros teams, uh, Brad Lidge, or yeah, Brad Lidge, Lance Berkman, Adam Everett, um, uh, Craig Biggio was on that team. A little bit of Jeff Bagwell, but he was kind of retiring towards the end of that. Um, Morgan Ensberg was on that team. I think we had Carlos Delgado on that team for a little bit. Those teams were one of my favorite teams in my childhood. I remember watching those games all the time when I was in my dad's, my down at my dad's place during the summer in Houston. Um, watching the games basically every night, every time they were on, we were watching the Astros um, when they were still in the NL Central, so a division rival in the Cardinals. And I remember Albert Pujols, uh, Jim Edmonds, God, uh, David Eckstein, all those guys being a thorn in the side of the Astros for quite a long time until I think 2007 they went to the World Series. The Astros did finally, uh, but then they got swept by the White Sox. Um, but I remember in, uh, or not 2007, that was 2000. Four was that 2004 2005 they may have been 2005 I don't remember actually off the top of my head I just remember them being swept by the White Sox and I was being very upset I was very upset about that I believe that was 2005 actually um but one of the bigger things is um and everybody kind of can go back and watch this clip I remember very clearly Albert Pujols against Brad Lidge NLCS game five uh, against Houston Brad Lidge is on the mound the closer for the Astros um Lidge was lights out. That was kind of his nickname, if I remember correctly, lights out Lidge or something like that. I remember they played on the video board every time he'd come out. It was like a a light bulb, like exploding, basically lights out. You know what I mean? Quote unquote. Um, I remember Brad Lidge was on the mound. Uh, They had two runners on the Cardinals had two runners on and Albert Pujols came up to the plate NLCS game five and Albert Pujols does what Albert Pujols does best. And he just hits an absolute tank into left field that feels like it never, ever landed. And it just kept going and going and going. And uh, it was a home run. And I remember hearing a quote. I remember crying at that too, because I was like, are you serious? This guy again, you know, as a kid, you know, I didn't really get it. But looking back, you know, it's like, man, this guy was a pain for so long against those Astros teams. And they were just a little, they always felt like they were just a little bit away from finally getting to that World Series and winning something because the Astros, they had never won anything they were never a necessarily fantastic franchise up until these early to early to mid two thousands teams um, when they were finally really good and they were winning the NL Central and stuff like that. Um, and then Albert Pujols he comes and does it again, hits an absolute tank in left field. And I remember reading a quote years after that happened that Albert Pujols said he said after he hit that home run, um, and this was the first uh, not not the first but one of many up to that point obviously, and and then many after. Um, 
He said that was the only time he can remember ever in the major leagues, ever hitting a home run and hearing himself run around the bases. And I thought that was so funny because if you go back and watch that clip of him hitting that home run in NLCS game five in 2005, you can tell, I mean, you can hear a pin drop in that stadium. It's in Houston at Minute Maid Park. And uh, when he hits that home run, right when he, the ball comes off of the bat, you can hear a pin drop in that, in that stadium. And um, I'm not surprised because if you watch him run around the bases, I swear you can hear the people in the dugout yelling, uh, the Cardinals dugout yelling and stuff like that. And it doesn't surprise me that that was one of the first times he ever heard himself actually run around the bases. That was, um, and that, that kind of hit me because I was, I think I was one of those people where it was just stunned silence. It was like one of those, are you serious? Really? Again, this, with this guy, this guy of all people is going to do this to us because that's who he was. Every team kind of has that as that one guy that they hate to face. And for the Astros, it was, uh, it was Albert Pujols and he still, you know, I obviously don't play him as much, but every time he goes to Houston, got to keep one eye open because it's very possible that he could go for a multi-homer game because that's kind of always something that it feels like. Even at even at 42 years old, if Robert Pujols is coming into Minute Maid Stadium, it feels like he's got a chance for a multi-home run game because he's done it for so long and he's always been clutch there. He's always been super annoying. But you can't do nothing but tip your cap to him because one of the greatest players of all time, one of the great people in the history of the MLB. So I hope he gets to 700. I really do. He's going to be a Hall of Famer, like I said. And uh, it'll be a great day when he actually gets enshrined into the Hall of Fame. And it'll be a great day when we finally find out his real age. That's a joke. It's a running conspiracy theory that nobody actually knows the real age of Albert Pujols. That he kind of forged his birth certificate, quote unquote, coming in to the uh, United States when he was drafted by the St. Louis Cardinals. And uh, it was always kind of a, a conspiracy theory that he was lying about his age when he came into the system, the MLB system, when he was coming out of the Dominican Republic. So making a joke there, but that's a, that's a fun, that's a fun conspiracy theory to kind of walk through. I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but if you ever have time, look up uh, Albert Pujols' real age or whatever, look up that. And it's kind of a fun conspiracy theory to kind of run through, but Albert Pujols tip my cap. Everybody should tip their cap to Albert Pujols. One of the great hitters of his time. And uh, he deserves 700. If anybody deserves it, it's him. One, like I said, fantastic player, fantastic human being. Okay, moving on. We're going to talk a little bit about Cowboy football. It is that time of season. The season is basically upon us. Coming up this Saturday, they will play. They will open the season at Illinois, Big Ten opponent, Illinois. In uh, in Illinois, obviously, uh, on the road, August 27th. Um, they will start the season against the Illinois Fighting Illini. And... Um, yeah, let's do, we'll do a quick little preview for what the Cowboys have. Big thing that happened this offense for the Cowboys, this whole team, actually, excuse me, for the Cowboys. Uh, they lost a lot of people to the transfer portal. Transfer, the transfer portal kind of, the floodgates kind of finally opened this past offseason, um, and it affected the Cowboys immensely. They lost a ton of talent on the offensive side of the ball. Uh, Sean Chambers left, their starting quarterback, left for Montana State, Levi Williams, who was the backup quarterback. Um, but I think he came in for Sean Chambers after he got hurt. Uh, he went to Utah State. And Andrew Peasley from the Utah State Aggies comes from Utah State to Wyoming. Uh, the Cowboys also lost Xavier Valade, one of their leading rushers, one of the uh, one of the better rushers in the history of Wyoming Cowboy football. Xavier Valade went to Arizona State. But backup for him, Titus Swin, he'll fit the offense. He played pretty good behind Xavier Valade. He had a couple big games last year, 
Um, Xavier Valade basically led every single game that the Cowboys ran or played. He basically led the the team in rushing every single game, except for I think like two or three. Um, so he was huge for them. Uh, but Titus Swin, like I said, he's a good player. He will fit that offense as well. He ran for 785 yards and seven scores just last season. So, you know, still solid team, still solid, uh, still solid running back group. We'll see about the quarterback position. We have no idea how that's going to work. Um, there is also not to mention Isaiah Nair. He was the leading, uh, leading receiver for the Cowboys last year. He averaged 20 yards per catch with 12 touchdowns last year. He's gone. He went to Texas. Uh, but they do have a backup in Joshua Cobbs. He's a decent mid-range threat, finishing second on the uh, on the tee with 25 catches. Uh, Trenton Welch, also, he's a decent pass-guessing tight end. That'll be nice for them as well. The big thing about the Cowboys that I want to see, I don't think I'm going to see it, to be honest with you, because it's kind of been the same thing for the past four to five years, is a somewhat more uh, upgraded offensive attack, if you will. The attack that they run, not very good. The offense averaged just 374 yards, 25 points per game last season. They failed to get past 21 points just seven times last season. That is a lot. They failed to get past 21 points seven times last season. In college football, that is not good. Um, But, however, when the attack was going good, when their offense was rolling, it was hard to stop. Period. No questions asked. It was a good offensive attack when it was rolling. It's a very feast or famine offense. I want them to get more consistent. I want to see more of the ball roll, you know, more ability to actually pass the ball for one. It felt like whenever, I mean, Chambers definitely had a problem whenever he was throwing the ball. He kind of had a big issue for whatever it was. Did not operate that offense very well when he was asked to throw the ball. Um, but Levi Williams came in and it felt like he felt, it felt like he was a lot more comfortable throwing the actual, the football downfield and that sort of thing, especially to guys like Isaiah Nair. Now he's gone. Levi Williams is gone as well. The uh, the transfer portal really hit them pretty hard, but we'll see what happens with Andrew Peasley coming in from Utah State. Uh, he wasn't all that accurate last year, but he has a little experience being a key backup over the last four years, and he can run, which obviously in this offense for the Cowboys is big. Um, and again, the IA, the accuracy thing isn't necessarily that big of a deal, to be honest with you. Uh, like I said, not a very accurate quarterback, but Josh Allen was here, and... He only hit 56% of his passes with 21 interceptions in his two main seasons. And now if you look at Josh Allen, he's arguably the best quarterback in the NFL. So it's interesting how the transfer, the transfer of consistency is for these teams for the, for the quarterback position for whatever Uh, Peasley connected on 54% of his throws in his time at Utah state. um, But he never had a full-time gig, but as long as he's able to move the change, or move the change, move the chains, limit his turnovers. Um, if he can hit the occasional deep ball, he will be fine for the offense, I would say. But like I said, it's not a revolutionary offense by any means. And not that you necessarily need one for the Mountain West or anything like that, but I would like to see their offense somewhat change a little bit in their in the in the philosophy that they're using uh, in order to move the ball. I think if you brought a much more modern offense into this team, I think it would... Uh, I think they'd have a chance to make a run at the Mountain West. But if if you're talking about running the ball, I don't think they'll ever be. I mean, they could be the best team at running the ball, but you have a team like Air Force who is going to be very good this year, and they're always going to be one of the top running teams in the country because they run triple option like all the Armed Forces teams, and it's going to be hard to beat them at running the ball, period. Um, If you're talking about passing attack, Fresno State's going to be very good at their passing attack. 
Utah State's going to be good this year with their passing attack. It's going to be impo- it's going to be very difficult to beat somebody with their passing attack. So I just want more consistency from both the passing attack and the rushing attack instead of leaning again feast or famine on one of them in order to win football games, which is something that it feels like the the Cowboys offense has struggled with. If one does not work and the other does not work, this is a very <laughs> this is a very obvious statement. One does not work and the other does not work. They're going to have a really tough time even sticking with other teams in uh, not just in the Mountain West, but throughout, you know, the the rest of college football as well. So um, we'll see what they, they do on offense. They're the very interesting part of this team, to be honest with you. It's a whole lot of new faces that uh, are, 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 are getting uh, first round reps with the uh, first team reps, excuse me, with the Cowboys. So we'll see what happens with them. Uh, the defensive side of the ball, it was also hit pretty hard. Uh, by the transfer portal, it's not as dramatic as the losses on offense, but it's definitely going to be a factor. The defense last year wasn't the best defense in the league or in the in the country. I'll say that they allowed 370 yards per game, but it didn't do a whole lot of breaking, allowing 24 points per game, and that many uh, that many or fewer times. The biggest concern for the Cowboys this season will probably on the defensive end will be their secondary. They lost corners C.J. Colden and Azizi Hearn uh, over to UCLA. Uh, C.J. Colden went to Oklahoma. On the flip side, uh, Darren Harrell is coming from Wisconsin, and Ja'Cory Hawkins is coming from Ole Miss to help at corner. Isaac White is a veteran starting safety, uh, but the depth and the rotation are a little bit lacking. I will say, this is kind of the positive thing. It's a positive and a negative for both for the transfer portal. Yes, you're going to lose guys like C.J. Colden, who are very good, or kind of outplaying the program to other programs. But then you get a guy like Darren Harrell, who is coming from Wisconsin, probably... The Cowboys were never on his list when it came to actually uh, signing his letter of intent to go play football somewhere. Cowboys were probably so far from his list. He could have had a pretty down season or something like that, didn't get enough playing time. Boom, you get Darren Harrell from Wisconsin to come play for a season. Sure, then he moves on, whatever. Ja'Cory Hawkins, same thing from Ole Miss, an SEC team. He was probably not anywhere near wanting to play at Wyoming, especially if you're looking at SEC teams. There's no, if SEC teams are recruiting you to you know to go play for Florida or South Carolina or whatever. There's no way that you're keeping a team from the Mountain West like Wyoming. No offense to Wyoming, I get it, but if you're getting recruited by the SEC, you're gonna take the SEC almost every time. So, but now Jacory Hawkins, he either didn't get enough playing time, was hurt or something like that, got slid down the rotation, the depth chart, and he comes to Wyoming, and it could be a very solid pickup from them in the in the transfer portal. It's a give and take. You know what I mean? If you can play both sides of the transfer portal. You can come out very happy with the teams and the players that you're with the with the with the people that you've gotten from the transfer portal. Even with the guys that you've lost, you can bring in very good players that were not expected to be on this team and kind of build something from the uh, if 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 you will the the phrase uh, one man's trash is another man's treasure. I get it. That's kind of you know I, I don't. It's not that blatant. Obviously, that's kind of rude but you get what i'm saying that's kind of the idea of it Corey hawkins was not a fit for ole miss if they didn't like him at ole miss or something like that the way he played over there bring him over to wyoming a very solid talent and he could be one of the best corners for the for the cowboys this season and you just got him for a transfer portal basically for free not somebody you would have ever been able to recruit because he's looking at old sec schools but he slides down the depth chart or something like that at ole miss he takes a look at wyoming where he'll get an immediate start basically if he's good enough and more often than not, he probably will be good enough. And bing, bang, boom, you got one of the better starting corners in the, in the country. 
you know, if all goes well, obviously. But that's kind of the good thing and the bad thing for the transfer portal. Yes, you're going to lose a lot of your really good players that kind of show out at the end of the season, like your Isaiah Nairs, your Levi Williams, that sort of thing. But there's a complete opposite of that where you have players on really good teams that are going to slide down the depth chart and look for a place that will give them playing time at least for one season. And then you can go and pick them up and boom, you're either right where you're at or you're better than you were last year just off of the transfer portal without even looking at recruiting or anything like that. So it's an interesting aspect of the transfer portal that I'm excited to see. The grand, the, the tough thing for fans is it probably will be hard towards you know the beginning of the season getting familiarized with new names basically every year uh, that are getting playing time just because of how much uh, in and out it's a revolving door. The transfer portal is a revolving door when it comes to players and uh, and you're going to see a lot of players leave after one season and that sort of thing. And new players come in, play for one season, then leave again. That, you know, that's not going to surprise me at all when we see if we see that with the Cowboys and a lot of other teams. So we'll see what happens with that. That send that that part of the transfer portal. I really do think it's going to change. It is the wild, wild west out there right now. To be honest with you, it's kind of just a if you have the money. For the most part, if you have the money, you can go and get basically whoever you want. Not that that wasn't happening beforehand by any means, especially in recruiting. It was a lot, you know. It's a, it was a lot less out in the open, but I wouldn't argue it wasn't still happening. Um, but anyways, that's a whole other story for another time, a whole other discussion. But just that's just just kind of a an idea of how I look at the transfer portal. There's a a give and a take, you know. Just especially with this, the revolving door, it goes one way, but there's an entrance and an exit. You know what I mean? So that's the way I look at it. We're gonna move on here a little bit, a little bit more on the defense. Um, like I said, their biggest concern is the secondary. We talked about that a little bit. The line, they have a great interior pass rusher and Cole Godbout on the nose and Jordan Bertignol, I believe is how you say his name is a Bertagnol, excuse me, is a good part of the solid tackle rotation, but, uh, they all have to kind of hold up better against the run. That means, uh, the ends have to rise up, but their size and quickness in the mix as well. They did lose obviously leading tackler, Chad Muma to the NFL draft. He went to the Jacksonville Jaguars. He had 142 tackles this past season from the linebacking core. Um, that's a problem. But second leading tackler, Easton Gibbs, can also kind of get all over the place on the outside. If there's one thing that, that has been great for this Wyoming Cowboys team ever since uh, ever since uh, Craig Bull got there, Craig Bull got there, um, it's been their linebacker play. They've basically sent out two linebackers, I believe, to the NFL draft. Give or t- I think it was two. Yeah, two linebackers to the NFL draft. So... Linebacker play should not be something you should necessarily be worried about. I think they can kind of just keep rotating guys in and out, to be honest with you, in order to get solid linebacker play. Um, but we'll see what happens. Uh, Shea Su... Oh, man, this is a tough name. Shea Suñoa, I believe is how you say his name. I apologize, apologize if that's not how you say your name. I'm going to get better with the names as the season goes on. Uh, Michigan State transfer. He will be good for them. Also a linebacker. And Cole DeMarzo will also be trying to take over for Chad Muma as he leaves 142 tackles as well. So we'll see what happens there. I don't know how confident I am in this Wyoming team. Like I said, there's a lot of change going on, especially on the offensive side. Um, The big thing is just hit the throws that you can hit. Make sure if you're the Cowboys, you know, they only hit 55% of their passes this past year. Uh, The big plays were happening a lot later in the season when Levi Williams was kind of put behind center and took over for Sean Chambers. Um, But now the offense has to keep pushing past the 60% mark on a regular basis if they really want to make that leap and play for play with, you know, the Air Force, Air Force, who's going to be very good this year, uh, the Boise States of their division and that sort of thing, Utah State of their division, you know, um, if they do that, then I think they're going to be 
pretty solid on offense. Um, Cowboys, another thing they're going to have to do, they have to get into the backfield a lot more. They only generated 24 sacks on the season, which 10 of them came against the two MAC teams that they played, Ball State and Ken State, and they were 112th in the nation for tackles for losses. Not a good mark. Cowboys are going to need to get into the backfield a lot more, get some more sacks, TFLs, a lot of stuff like that. They're going to need to do that if they're going to play against these, you know, obviously the bigger teams like Boise State and stuff like that. They're going to have to be able to chase down the quarterback, get tackles for losses, get in the backfield. That'll be huge for them. That'll be huge for them. So we'll see what happens. Cowboys, here's their schedule, their upcoming schedule. They got out Illinois uh, the Saturday, the next Saturday against Tulsa at home and then Northern Colorado. Air Force of the 16th of September at home. That's a big get for them at Air Force at home. That's great for them. Uh, Friday, the September 16th, it's a Friday game. And then Saturday, September 24th, they're on the road at 25th ranked BYU. 25th ranked, obviously, as of right now. That could change very much so. Um, but that is Saturday, the 24th. And then they're back at home against San Jose State on October 1st. October 8th, they're on the road at New Mexico. Uh, Saturday, uh, October 22nd, so they get a bye. And then Saturday, October 22nd. They get uh, Utah State at home again, another good home matchup that is great for them. And then Saturday, October 29th at Hawaii, Saturday, November 12th at Colorado State. That'll be a tough game. Border Wars always always hard to play at, especially on the road. And then uh, Saturday, November 19th versus Boise State at home. Again, another solid home matchup. If they can sneak one of those games, Utah State, Boise State, or uh uh, Air Force at home. If they can sneak away with one win from those three games, I think that's a very successful homestand against those three teams. Um, if they can get two, then you're absolutely delighted. Um, and then Friday, November 25th, they close out the season at Fresno State. Uh, Fresno State on the road. That is a tough matchup, especially to end the year on. Fresno State uh, should be one of the best teams in that division uh, of the Mountain West of the uh, of the. West division of the Mountain West. Fresno State should be one of the best teams in that division. But you don't have to play San Diego State. That's a good play. That's fantastic. You don't have to worry about that unless, you know, you're going into a Mountain West championship game or something like that. But don't have to worry about them in the regular season. If they can sneak out, like I said, one win against either Air Force, Utah State, or Boise State all at home, that's a successful homestand for those three teams. If you can get two, you're absolutely ecstatic. If you get three, then you're, you know, out of this world. Um, but there have been, you know, slip-ups in the past against teams that they should have beat. Uh, UNLV last year, I believe they beat, or they they lost to. New Mexico, they lost to. Bad loss there. Excuse me, not UNLV, just New Mexico. And then San Jose State, they lost to on the road. But New Mexico, they lost at home 14-3. to um, So, they have been known for their slip-ups, no doubt. Also, Hawaii last year as well, 38-14. to It was kind of a blowout there. Um, but then they had their surprises. They went into Utah State and beat them 44-17. to It wasn't necessarily close. Uh, they beat Colorado State at home. They lost only by 10 to Boise State on the road. Not a terrible showing there. Again, they lost to Air Force on the road as well at home or on the road, 24-14 to there, only by 10. So if you can sneak out wins against those three teams at home, the three favorites, I would say, in the Mountain West, Air Force, Utah State, and Boise State. If it's not Utah State, uh, then it's probably Fresno State as the other favorite. Um, if you can sneak one win to two wins out of those three, then you're absolutely ecstatic. Uh, if you can get two wins out of those four teams, then you're definitely very happy. Fresno State, Boise State, Utah State, and Air Force. Um, but they can't be slipping up against you know Illinois either or Tulsa at home. That's not a game you can slip up with. Um, San Jose State, again, that'll be a revenge game per se, quote-unquote. 
for the Cowboys. They should, you know, they should win that game. I'm not paying a whole lot of attention at BYU at the moment on September 24th, just because BYU could be, you know, they're ranked 25th in the preseason poll, but it's a preseason poll. You know, those are all odd. I mean, nobody really knows. Um, and so on and so forth. So we'll see what happens. It'll be interesting to see where this kind of all lines up. They got a very good draw with their home schedule with the air, like I said, with the air force, Boise state and uh, Utah state games. That's a very good draw for them. Um, a couple tough road games, like I said, at BYU at Hawaii is always difficult just because of the travel. And then, uh, at Colorado state, that'll always be tough in Fresno state as well, who are one of the better teams in the conference. So we'll see what happens. Cowboys, I think uh, I've seen a couple people have their win totals at six, if I remember correctly. I think that's probably a little bit low because I think they could surprise. But again, this offense is a dark. I, nobody really knows how what this offense is going to look like. We have an idea just because of how they've run the offense in the past years, but we have no idea how it's going to work with this new quarterback, basically a new running back, new outside receiver, you know, number one outside receiver, that sort of thing. Uh, the O-line should, for the most part, they're basically the same. The O-line should be very solid this year, but um, the rest of everything around them has changed. So we don't really know what it's going to look like, and um could be good. I mean, could be bad. Nobody really knows. We'll see after this first game come this Saturday what it really looks like when they take on Illinois on the road. 2 p.m. kickoff time for that. We'll have that game for you as well. Sheridan Media will have that game. Uh, 14.10 a.m., 106.9 FM, KWYO. You can listen to it live. I believe they have an hour pregame, so we'll go live for you at 1 p.m. and then kick off at 2 p.m. live on the broadcast on 1410 a.m. and 106.9 FM, KWYO for you there. And I think that is going to wrap up the show today. Uh, a little bit longer today. I kind of went on a couple rants, and that's okay. Uh, you know, we'll see how long it is in the end. You'll know before I will. Um, but I want to thank you very much for tuning in. Thank you very much for listening. This has been the Weekend Sports Wrap Podcast, and I have been your host, James Timberlake.